0: All right, so this week we'll uh I'll be talking to Matt Taibbi. He's a author and political writer. He writes for uh Rolling Stone. Um he's also written books such as Grieftopia, The Divide, Insane Clown President, and uh what I'll be focusing on more today is I Can't Breathe, his latest book. Uh thanks for joining me, Matt. Of course, Keith. Um, to to yeah. So to kind of jump right into it, as I was reading through I Can't Breathe, I noticed a lot of similarities from The Divide. Specifically, I kept picturing police vans driving around picking up mostly young minority men uh, without any probable cause um, for the simple fact that they looked suspicious. So I noticed a lot of the same police procedures from the divide to the specific case of Eric Gardner.
1: Right. Yeah. And that that has to do with uh, a series of incentives that are kind of built into the modern system of policing. Most people don't really know a whole lot about it. Um, if you've watched shows like The Wire, uh, you might have heard a little bit about a new kind of um, of policing that started to take hold in big cities in the early nineties. And uh, we have this system called Comstat in a a lot of uh, cities where basically what happens is the, the senior members of the police department, the captains and lieutenants, We'll get orders from above that they have to jack up their number of arrests in a certain category um, because they're getting citizen complaints or because the photos of the blocks don't look uh, particularly appealing. So what they'll do is they'll, uh, you know, a captain or a, or a, a, you know somebody in charge of a precinct will get the word that we need to pick up more people for loitering, we need to pick up more people for dealing X or Y drug, we need to pick up more people for uh, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they especially will get orders that we need to um, have more random stops and searches. This was back when stop and frisk was still a thing in New York. Right. So so what those vans are all about is you know, basically cops sort of have a, have a quota, it's unspoken, but they have one, and so they'll go ripping around the neighborhood looking for anybody um, who kind of fits the description. And you know, they'll find somebody who has an outstanding warrant on them, or um, they'll get somebody on a charge like obstructing pedestrian traffic uh,
0: or obstructing government administration,
1: right. and they'll just toss them in a the van and put them, you know, add them to
0: the stat count. And sometimes, uh, a lot of times, they'll just add a charge that's not non-existent at the time or, you know, something stupid like a joint in their pocket or something white people do just at the same level, just, you know, we don't have police vans driving around our neighborhoods. Right, right,
1: exactly. I mean, a a great example of that was uh, the last time that I looked at these stats in New York, I think it was, was for the Divide. It was, I think it was probably 2011, And at that time, um, possessing marijuana under a certain amount was actually decriminalized in New York City. As long as you kept it private, as long as as it was in your pocket or you were smoking it in the the privacy of your own home, they weren't supposed to arrest you for it. But what they would do is they would do these stop and frisks and – Put people up against the wall and tell them to empty their pockets. People would empty their pockets. Now all of a sudden, the joint they had on them this is out in public. And so they, they they literally had fifty thousand marijuana arrests that year uh, in in New York for a crime that you know probably eighty percent of those those cases probably would have been decriminalized if, if those people had never been stopped. So it's it's a classic example of how you can manufacture crime uh, whole cloth.
0: Right. And there are there are major differences in, you know, these previous cases of of those cases where something's found or um, something suspected. And in this recent case, one of the notable difference is the Eric Gardner case. I don't believe the the officer that applied the illegal chokehold has faced any charges yet.
1: No, no. There's been a little departmental discipline, but even that's not completed. So, no, he, he didn't face any criminal charges. They rarely do. Very rarely.
0: Right well, in this case, he's actually been charged mm-hmm. uh, just this past weekend the um, the highway was shut down from protesters um, because of this recent case and the officer in question has you know a past of you know a troubling past of racial discrimination and abuse of power you know the usual things um,
1: right. Well, right. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems with
0: the system in most cities is that there's really no way
1: to find out what kind of a history a police officer has. So um, let's say you've been arrested uh, by an officer you felt was too aggressive. You want to make the argument in court that uh, the arresting officer treated you badly, treated you roughly, that this might have provoked you to resisting arrest, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. You can't just go to a database and see how many complaints that there there have been against that officer. That that database doesn't exist in most cities. Um, you can't even get a file a Freedom of Information request to find it. You basically have to pry it open through a lawsuit, um, and these it takes a tremendously long uh, amount of time to do that. Even in the Eric Garner case, they never released that information. It was only leaked out. Um, how many complaints there had been. So there are a lot of problem cops who've been switched back and forth. Also, this is another little-known detail of the system. If there's a settlement, like if a cop gets sued for excessive force, typically the city will settle, and the precinct won't even hear the result of that suit. So let's say the city has to pay out $50,000 because a cop knocked somebody around. His captain may not even know that. About that settlement when it's done right. So so there's a total disconnect there
0: Yeah because in, um, in The last case of There was even a little scuffle in the beginning Of a guy running away From a cop and the cop then Pulled his gun and fired you know A bunch of rounds killing the guy um, The cop you know was able to Say he reached for his taser or something Like that
1: right yeah that Was the uh, that was the one in uh, I believe it was Charlottesville Right um, right yeah.
0: Um, he at least had the defense that they were face-to-face. In this case, you know, the cop stops the car, or, or, or I'm sorry, um, Antoine Rose, you, you see him in the video running away, you see the cop get out of the car and just start firing shots. Right,
1: right. Yeah, I mean, that's like the Tamir Tamir Rice case in Cleveland, you know, where you had the 14-year-old kid who's got a toy gun, and... Some people in the neighborhood called in. And the police just roll up, and you and you see the, the them jump out of the squad car and just blow them away. I mean that that's the kind of thing that you you just wouldn't see in in an upscale white neighborhood. Um, and yeah, it's 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 uh, it's very unfortunate. There are there are a lot of these incidents. For, the One positive thing is that the the prevalence of cell phones has made it far more likely that these that these incidents are going to be captured on film now. Whereas in the past, uh, police very frequently just, you know, p- uh, pleaded justification. They would add little details. They would say that they were provoked. Um, and most of these cases just kind of disappear. That's just not happening as much anymore.
0: Right. That was a big thing in the Eric Gardner case. Um, the, the cell phone footage was everything.
1: Oh, absolutely. It, I mean, it's... It, 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 it's actually proven they, they filed a report later that night
0: um, where essentially the, the, the video they, contradicts what they say.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what, what that case would have been was, um, you know, we, we had to apply some force in the course of a, an arrest where, you know, the subject was resisting, which he was, he was resisting and they would have, um, they would have, Uh, you know, said that it was a death due to natural causes um, because he did have health problems. Uh, And it wasn't, if if not for that video, they would clearly have asserted that. So um, we have a lot of those cases now where, you know, um, the police will say one thing and then a video will surface and it will turn out to be something else. Uh, The, the killing in Chicago, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name now. Uh, but, uh, you know, that turned out when the, when the video was, was, was uncovered a year after the case, um, it turned out to contradict the police version and that, in that, in that incident as well. So yeah, the video has been a major factor in a lot of these cases.
0: Right. And in the, um, in the Eric Gardner case, the one thing in the video that really, um, you know, that's kind of haunting is when he says, and I believe, like, I've seen it so many times. This is, I, I believe the exact quote. Um, he says, like, every time you see me, you arrest me. I'm tired of it. And it, yeah, stopped, it stops and, and today. Yeah. Right. And it did stop that day, but it's because they, you know, they, uh, you know, killed him this time.
1: Right. And, and this is one of the things I was trying to get at in the book is that the, this, problem between Garner and the police had been building up over a long period of time and it had a lot to do, again, with, with these idiotic incentives that are built into the way cops have to do their jobs. They are under tremendous pressure to, to get numbers. And the easiest way to get numbers uh, in a lot of neighborhoods is to go after people like Garner. Garner was uh, an older man. He was overweight. He couldn't run away and he wasn't particularly dangerous. Um, so rather than tangle with some 21 year old in shape kid who might be, uh, you know, dangerous to go after, uh, they would constantly hassle, uh, Garner and bring him in for this sub misdemeanor offense of selling untaxed cigarettes. Again, this is an offense that you really, you can't even get, uh, time for, uh, in most cases it's at best, um, you know, a, a fine uh, in most instances unless they catch you with a certain quantity but they would go after him over and over again because it was easy to get numbers. So Garner he felt very pu- uh, put upon because he's surrounded by people who are dealing, you know, heroin and speed and all this other stuff and the cops would just ignore those people and go right for him over and over and over again and they would take his money. That, that was another aspect of it that, that people don't understand is that Cops will just roll up on somebody like Garner, or reach into his pocket, take his money, and say, "Okay, if you made it legally, come down to the station and show us your and pay
0: Prove stuff. it, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So you know, yeah, he's making money illegally. He's hustling, but you know, <laughs> he's still a guy go still has mouths to feed. So right. this is all this is all built into the into the frustration of, of that scene is that he had had repeated contacts with police over and over and over again. Over nothing, you know what I mean? If, like if, if the police were really interested in reducing crime in that neighborhood, they'd be going after different people, including the guy who took the video. So uh, uh, that that was uh, that was a, a huge subtext of that incident.
0: And something else you highlight in the book is so beforehand, there's like a cr- a crime unit task force that would drive around. I'm not sure the exact name, and then they would go back and tell you know the other police officers to go go out and handle certain problems. Um, and you, you only see these things once money is starting to come into a certain community. And you kind of highlight that in, in the book, um, it, it, you know, cops didn't come around, but then once investment came into that community, then cops came around and uh, started, you know, um, harassing people like Eric. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, the, and, the, and this, 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 again, is the major subtext to uh, programs like Stop and Frisk is, you know, basically New York, cities like New York in the 80s were, um, you know, they were, they were having problems with crime. But more than anything, there was a perception in big cities uh, that, you know, upscale, high-income voters were afraid to walk in their own neighborhoods so they, what they really wanted from police was to keep certain people out of their neighborhoods, right? So what you ended up having was um, essentially a kind of informal version of border police uh, who would heavily patrol the areas between poor and rich neighborhoods. And when certain people tried to cross over from one into the other, that's when they'd be hit with the stop and frisk. Uh, stops. That's when they'd be busted for these minor infractions. That's when you'd get the obstructing pedestrian traffic or the loitering or the obstructing government administration. And in the case of Garner, yeah, that area used to be called needle park. I I talked to one guy who was an ex con. He was like, yeah, when I first moved here, I didn't see a cop for six months. Um, But then they, they put up this billion dollar uh, condo project along the water about a hundred yards away. And next thing you know, there's cops all over the place and unmarked cars. And, and what they're really doing is trying to keep people like Garner out of the area to prevent property values from going down. That's really what it's all about.
0: Right. So in the end, it's about yeah. protecting, you know, billionaires money again, which, which ties back to the divide. So almost poetically, the, the social and economic injustices, um, especially in, quote-unquote democratic state like new york city so yeah i wanted to start out with that to get a little some of the more recent depressing news out of the way um, <laughs> sure, yeah. with the protests and everything because the the reason i'm not sure if a lot of people know but the reason that they're protesting on the highway is because a lot of the highway systems in america are said to have been built strategically to divide white families from from black families, so oh, I mean that—that's
1: that, that, a huge, <laughs> that's a huge thing in, in Staten Island where the Garner case took place. There's a highway that bisects the uh, the uh, the entire borough, and it's literally called the Mason Dixon line because all the black people live north of it, and all the white people live south of it. Right. Um, and it's it's not an uncommon scenario. So some of it is organics, like some of it is just because. Like, you'll find a lot of cities where the rich people live on the high ground and the poor people live on the lower ground, um, and you'll find some areas that are developed heavily on one side of a highway and not so much on the other side of a highway. Uh, whether that's done intentionally or not, it's hard, it's hard to know, but it's a fact that they, they are symbols of some of the division, um, the geographic division between these neighborhoods.
0: Right. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of highlight that for some people who may not who may not understand even that aspect of it. For for everybody who says, you know, racism isn't systemic because, you know, people like Dave Rubin, I'm not sure if you even know who that is. No, is he? Um, he's uh, kind of like a right wing grift. He's um, he used to work for TYT and then he left to kind of join the Jordan Petersons and Ben Shapiro's. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and he claims, you know, racism isn't systemic because there's no laws uh that say, you know, there's no racist laws, so that means racism isn't systemic. Right. And that black people are arrested more due to economics. If if we had just a more open and a freer market, that black people wouldn't be uh thrown in jail at a higher rate. So
1: <laughs> Right. Right. Well, I mean, look there are people who are going to say that because, for the most part, open racism was removed from the criminal code in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, but um, a lot of the laws that are sort of underpinning the modern policing system are are, are definitely racist in their application. Um, and this idea, like for instance, there's this. Uh, there was a law uh, a Supreme Court case uh, in 1968 um, that provides the legal justification for a stop-and-frisk um, that essentially says that a police officer can stop somebody and question them if they have an articulable suspicion that that person may be engaging in a crime and in the in the case um, uh, which was uh, called Ohio v. Terry, the actual case was was that the police stopped uh, a trio of men because it was two black men hanging out with a white dude in the street in a bad neighborhood. So what that case basically says is if you if you have a suspicion that somebody just looks funny to you, you can stop them and question them. Now, that's not overtly racist. Uh, it, it doesn't legally allow you to stop somebody because... You know they're black, or because they look funny, right. but it does allow it does allow for a police officer to make a subjective determination that you know may very well turn out to be we're going to stop every every black male between fifteen and twenty five who looks like they don't have anything to do on a school day. You know what I'm saying? Right. That, that's, that's the way it turns out in practice. So yeah, uh, you're
0: never going to find a sentence in in uh, local ordinance that say you know arrest black people.
1: Right. Right. And it, it, look, it, w- it was definitely progress that they that they removed you know, the act, the actually discriminatory, openly discriminatory housing laws that existed in, you know, prior to the 60s. Um, but you still have these holdovers that, all, that allow for all kinds of discriminatory behavior just sort of between the lines.
0: So, yeah, moving away from that, I wanted to talk about. um Well, I guess this ties back to to the divide as well Um, The uh, recent rollbacks of Dodd-Frank You wrote a piece on it I believe nine Democrats even voted for these repeals Um, Seventeen, actually Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah Seventeen Senate Democrats Yeah Oh, that's right. Sen- seven uh, senators. That's correct. Um, and, you know, of course, the usual suspects like Bernie um, didn't vote for it. Chris Murphy, I was very vocally against it. And it has a unusually long name. It's like the Economic Growth Re- Regulatory Re- something. <laughs> I don't I don't even know the name. It's so long. But basically, yeah. all it's doing is rolling us back to the 2009 regulatory actions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes, it goes part, the, part of the way there. You know, sort of the, the history of, of Dodd-Frank, and I, and I spent two years covering the passage of this ridiculously huge and mostly ineffective law.
0: Um, Dodd-Frank but, in the first place is hugely it, ineffective, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, I, so I, I, I had to cover the, the 2008 collapse. I spent, probably eight years on that story. And when they went into the process of, of um, creating a law to address the problems that had caused the 2008 crash, sort of similar to what happened in the 30s after the 1929 crash, the the solutions were pretty obvious, right? Like after 19 the 1929 crash, the obvious solution was we have to put stocks on an open exchange so that everybody can see the real prices and everybody can see the real activity and everything's transparent and there won't be as much hidden secret speculation and you won't have these scary bubbles happening, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they needed to do something very similar this time around by putting uh, sort of new forms of financial instruments on open exchanges. Um, This could have been a law that could have been 10 pages long, right? Uh, In reality, if they had just, uh made a few simple changes, like you know, requiring a little bit more capital in banks, put the derivatives on open exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, they ended up with this monstrosity that was like 3,000 pages long and full of loopholes. And even so, after they passed it, um, financial interests have been spending you know, all their time since this passage, trying to carve out more and more loopholes they file lawsuits to try to reduce some of the, uh, the some of the passages and try to try to make them um, sort of less intrusive uh, force force the the government to do cost-benefit analyses on on whether or not these laws are effective delay their implementation and this latest thing all it really does is it's a, it's an attempt to try to prevent the law from requiring banks to have a certain amount of capital on hand. And why do you you want banks to have a whole bunch of stuff on hand and and actually have a lot of money? So that you don't have a repeat of the 2008 scenario where banks were lending out 35 bucks for every dollar they had and when things went wrong, they didn't have enough money to cover their losses. And that's why we needed bailouts. So they're, what they're trying, what what this new thing does is just add a level or maybe two levels of danger to the to the economy. Um, and it's it's an unfortunate thing. Uh, by the time they're done with this, it'll be like Hemingway's old old man in the
0: sea novel. There'll be nothing left on the bone of that fish <laughs> they caught. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so it's so, depressing. So basically, they did nothing to address. Too big to fail because they've grown since, um, and pretty much oh, it's,
1: it's worse than that. They, the, the, they they actually made the problem worse during the bailouts by by forcibly merging together a bunch of the banks so that that the power was more concentrated and the banks were bigger and scarier and more likely to and and less able to be uh, to to allow to fail than they were before. Sorry to
0: interrupt. No, that's that. I was just gonna add, and Dodd Frank was, you know, let's not forget, in part, you know, partially written by people that worked in the financial institutions. Um,
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was almost wholly written by people who worked for the financial institutions, and even, and even the. This is one thing that people don't understand about this kind of legislation. This stuff is so complex, and it's and the the way that that financial markets now work. Um, are, it's so highly technical that you can't really cover it in legislation. You can only have sort of broad guiding principles that you can address in the laws. And then the actual nitty-gritty of the rules, um, which are, you know, highly technical fine print stuff, that all, all has to be done after the laws are written in rulemaking sessions. And it's almost entirely industry people who contribute to how that stuff is written. So uh, you have multiple levels of of industry influence on the bill and on the rules that the bill is supposed to be, that are implemented after the bill is passed. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of industry stuff.
0: Right. Right. And, and it's not getting any better. Let's face it. I, I mean, Obama, if we're being honest, did nothing to help if not made the problem worse. And under Trump, I don't even want to think about you know what financial institutions think is okay to do because they got away with anything, and the most they would get is a fine. Um, so, so they're already not scared to do whatever they want or, or break any law or oversight because.
1: Right. Yeah. They, they, I mean, they created you know Dodd Frank did create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which supposedly was supposed to help, but that. Really doesn't have any
0: teeth. I mean, right. The uh, amount of eyes that are on these institutions are still laughable, correct?
1: Yeah, it's it's still woefully small. Uh, in reality, they they didn't even really need to create a whole lot of new rules. What they just really needed to do was aggressively and more aggressively enforce the laws that they already had. I mean, just to give you an example, HSBC got caught laundering eight hundred and fifty million dollars for, you know, Central and South American drug cartels. And, you know, they got a a deferred prosecution agreement where nobody did a day in jail. Nobody um, nobody paid a dime in in money out of their own pockets. It all came out of the shareholders pockets. And part of the company's fine was tax deductible, which means we all paid for it. Uh, So, you know, it. In reality, if all they really had to do is treat the bank the way they would treat anybody else who laundered money, and as any person who's ever been on the wrong side of a drug prosecution will tell you, you can get a lot of time for for, for laundering money. You can get fifteen or twenty years, and you know th- these guys got a total walk for the biggest money laundering case maybe in history. So you you had stuff like that going on all across the industry, and. And that's and you're absolutely right that they, they, they have no reason to not behave worse now because they, you know, even when they were caught, they, they didn't really have any real consequence.
0: And uh, going back to the um, Financial Protection Bureau um, and Elizabeth Warren uh, recently, she. Um, well, no, this isn't even recently. I've just found it recently. Um, some of my and this says a lot about who I am, but some of my favorite clips on YouTube are. Old clips like there's one of you and Sam Cedar discussing <laughs> discussing one of uh, when Alex Perrine goes on uh, I think it was CNBC.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And he was talking about Jamie Dimon. Yeah, that was hilarious.
0: Right, or the one with you, uh, Ali Velshi, and um, some some reporter, I believe, for the Financial Times. I'm not sure. Megan Mcardle. Right. Oh wow, was that Megan Mcardle?
1: May- Megan Mcardle, yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. Wow. And uh, there's another one. There's one of Elizabeth Warren and she spars with some pundits on CNBC and they basically I, I, I suggest everybody go back and watch all these clips because they're <laughs> they're gold. But she she basically goes through the history. They say, you know, regulations don't help. They don't do anything. And then she goes through the history. Well, actually, there was a 50 year period where nothing happened. And only when we started deregulating did we start seeing crashes again um, Right. so this whole deregulation thing and running the country as a corporation has proven to be not only wrong but disastrous for the country um, what is it going to take to finally get people away from you know we're not running a financial institution we're running you know
1: well I mean I, I think with I, I, if I remember that incident that Elizabeth Warren was talking about One of the things that she was talking about was the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. Right. Um, And so, again, after the crash in 1929, everybody looked at what happened on Wall Street and what happened in that crash. And and they said, well, here's something that's pretty obvious, right? We shouldn't have commercial banks being also investment banks uh, because one one, uh, operation is designed entirely just to keep your money safe right? That's their. That's supposed to be their only mission. And another one is supposed to make money by adding risk to the economy, right? So if you have both of those things under one roof, it's essentially like, you know, keeping TNT in the same building where you're trying to take care of your kids. It's like a contradiction in terms.
0: Right. And, in, layman, and they, in layman terms, basically, it's, um, you know, you're keeping people's money that they put in a bank and you're mixing that up with money that Wall Street, you know, gambles with and speculates with. And, um, there's no separating that money when something bad happens.
1: It's not even just separating the money, although that, yeah, that, that is sort of true ultimately because if the companies fail, you end up having to use money from the one to bail out the other. But it's also just the, the, the structure of the company. You, you know, you have people with, with conflicting goals. Um, and uh, and commercial uh, aims uh, managing the, these two different operations and what, what ends up happening if you have uh, those companies all under the same roof is that you have an incentive for banks to overproduce uh, commercial loans and then the investment banks will be their, their investment side will be incentivized to try to sell them to unsuspecting customers everywhere and that's exactly what happened Uh, Prior to 2008, uh, you had all these financial institutions that were making too many mortgages, and then you had investment banks that suddenly had all these these crap loans, and they were selling them off to people who didn't really need them. And that's why why you don't want to have those operations under the same roof. And what she was saying was, when we had that separation until 1997 and 1998, we didn't have any of these crashes. We didn't have these big bubble episodes. Um, and then we repealed that law, and we've had two of them since. We had one in you know after the dot-com crash, and then we had one in 2008. And we're, we're looking at the same situation right now where uh, the banks are, again, massively overproducing loans. This time it's not so much mortgages. It's, it's regional commercial loans. You're going to hear a lot probably in the near future about things called CLOs, Um, and you know, she's absolutely right. You need to keep those operations separate, but it's probably going to take another crash for people to wise up to that.
0: Um, CLO, what's a, what does CLO stand for?
1: Uh, collateralized loan obligation. So in, in in the prior to the 2008 crash, um, you, you heard about a similar thing called the CDO. Right. A collateralized debt obligation where essentially what they were doing, banks were doing, is they were making, making ton, tons of these mortgages, right? They would go into neighborhoods uh, and they were handing out mortgages like candy to anybody with a pulse uh, whether or not they qualified for them. And then what they would do is they would chop up these loans into a kind of hamburger and sell them to investors um, as, as um, as as a sort of high yield real estate investment. They basically used a whole bunch of hocus pocus math to make, to disguise the poor quality of the loans. So you'd have like a trade union in Finland would buy $100 million worth of American mortgages and they would think that they were buying, you know, homes in decent neighborhoods uh, owned by people with jobs and, and identification. And actually, what they were doing was buying, you know, these sort of crumbling houses in Stockton, California, that were bought, you know, on 100% credit by people who didn't have jobs or ID, or in many cases weren't even citizens. So you had <laughs> ma- massive amounts of these loans were being created, and then what happened was. Uh, they were being pumped into the to the economy by the investment banks uh, under the same roof. What's what they're doing now is they're making the same kinds of hamburger, but they're doing it with um, commercial loans to small businesses. Oh wow! Uh, so what you're gonna you're gonna see like sort of massive growth in regional businesses, and that's gonna end up probably popping at some point. Um, there's, there's some similarly published activity with student loans, but, um, because all basically any kind of debt can be made into the same kind of hamburger. Uh, it's just a question of the riskiness of it. And the, these commercial loans are the most risky right now.
0: So what does that mean? So, that particularly applies to me and most of, <laughs> most of my listeners. Um, so the, I, my student loans are, um, all of the, none of them are private. They're all Pell grants and and loans from uh, the federal government. So, does that mean, you know, if if the student loan bubble does bust, is that on me? Is that on uh, the taxpayer? Uh, what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, it, it, the the primary the, the 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 first pain is going to be suffered. Probably by the government because, as you say, most of those loans are explicitly backed by the federal government. Um, but you had a similar situation with mortgages. A lot, of, a lot of the mortgages um, in the that were involved in the subprime crash, I would say a lot, but a significant portion of them were were created and backed or purchased by Fannie Mae and or Freddie Mac, um, and those institutions took huge losses after. Um, uh, after 2008 and in fact were used as the kind of secondary bailout mechanism where they would buy up, they would actually buy up the bad private mortgages uh, after they had already been in collapse. So, but, but what ends up happening is that, that there are so many companies that have, and, and financial interests that have, um, that depend upon projections and growth tied to those student loans. So that's why we had you know, you know the stock market and and IRAs went down by an average of thirty to forty percent after 2008, even though you know you don't trade mortgages in the stock market. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, so losses will be felt across the board when when a big market collapses.
0: So it'd be essentially it'd be better, cheaper, and just overall smarter to deal with you know some sort of student loan forgiveness. On the front end, then it would be to wait for for a crash.
1: Well, I mean, I'm in favor of student loan forgiveness for other reasons, but yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, I, I, it's it's the student loan situation right now is is completely ridiculous. It's I think the way they have it arranged is is criminal. Um, you, know, you can almost any other kind of debt. You can get out of this. Is how is it that students, who are the most unsophisticated uh, investors in the entire economic landscape, these are the only people who can't declare bankruptcy, who can't get out from under their obligations, no matter how bad bad things get. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. I think they have to change that. Um, You know, I've done a couple of stories on this. Uh, I've met people who. Um, reach social security age and the government is still attaching is attaching their social security payments uh, to cover their the student loan debt that they they never paid off. I mean you probably don't want to hear this, but uh when you have a student loan it, it just unless you pay it off, it doesn't go away. It you you can't unlike any other kind of debt
0: Right, you, you can't c- claim bankruptcy or something like that.
1: Yeah, you can't just throw yourself in the mercy of the court and say like Look, I don't have any money, so, you know, right. I mean, like, I, I, I'm never going to get, like, if you try to get out of a, a mortgage, you know, you may never get credit again, but you're not going to be, you're not going to have $500,000 hanging over your head for the rest of your life. That's not the way student loans work. They, that debt never goes away. It's like a, an STD, basically. You're going to, you're going to
0: have it forever. <laughs> and for students that don't understand, that means, you know, the government is going to have, you know, the, in the contract you sign, the government has the right to garnish your wages, to contact you at work, you know, to, to basically harass you and take your money until you die, you know, or you pay off your massive student loan debt.
1: Yeah, and and uh, also, you know, sort of secondary problem there is that the, the government um, has a unique ability to keep track of people, right? Um, you know, because you have to pay taxes every year. Unlike almost any other kind of debt, um, they have an ability to hound you. Uh, they have uh, that other kinds of lenders do not. Uh, so, yeah, they'll keep after you forever. I mean, I've, I've I, I've talked to so many people who had student loans who had awful experiences. I've talked to people who've, you know, been paralyzed, unable to work uh, because of other illnesses, uh, have been un- unable to talk debt collectors uh, out of harassing them. Uh, so it's, it's serious. I mean, student loans, look, if you got them already, it's an unfortunate thing. Like they, they sort of prey upon you at an early age. When you don't really know what you're doing, right. your parents your parents probably don't aren't really terribly sophisticated about this stuff either, and they just sort of bring you into an office and say, "Hey, don't you want to come to our college? It's going to be great when you get out. You know, you're going to get a great job, and it's not a problem." The reality is, once you miss a couple miss a couple of payments, then it starts snowballing, and you, you can wake up at age 55 and still owe 100 grand, and it's it's a bad thing.
0: So my suggestion is, you know, if you go to college and have and have student loans, either never get a job (laughs) or I don't know, because people with bachelor's degrees and higher in certain fields like technology are are finding very easy pretty much anywhere they want to go. Social media directors, um, any company will hire, even if you don't know that much, just a bachelor's degree in I.T., um, you can fool boomer employers into thinking, you know, everything. Um, and I've done that, but
1: no, I mean, I, I, I talked to people when I, when I did my last student loan story a couple of years ago um, I had somebody contact me and say, actually I had, I had two different people contact me and, and basically tell the same story, which was student loans or what uh, inspired me to go into crime. For a living, <laughs> because because it was the only kind of income I could get that I could keep.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and so you know, I, I talk to people who became one guy became a meth dealer, another guy's a weed dealer. Um, it's it's tough, man. I mean, it's it's uh, debt is a very very serious and underreported problem in our country. And again, the people who are most affected by it are the people who understand it the least. You know they're they're going after 18 year old kids who just don't know what they do what they're doing and I it's I mean I, I I can't tell you how worked up I get about it I, and I think about my own kids and I'm already planning to to do whatever it takes to get them out of that system and then, you know the, and this movement to to make up a, a higher education more affordable or free I, I think that's probably going to start to bear fruit pretty soon because you know, your generation is coming up and there's there are so many people who have this problem of the, of the unaffordability of college uh, and the inability to get a job without a college degree that you know that paradox just can't continue forever. It, it has to be resolved, um, it, and, or else you know you're going to have mass misery throughout the population, and that it's just unsustainable.
0: That kind of brings up what I wanted to talk about next is um, the Ocasio Cortez win and you know the kind of comparisons to Trump. And, um, doing a little bit of research for this episode, like, this is something I wanted to talk about, but I actually saw that you wrote something about this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and how people like, um, you, you have pundits like Steve, Steve Smith going on MSNBC saying, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is just like Trump in that she has no good ideas and that she's just, uh, it's politics. It's mudslinging pretty much. Right. Right. and this is a guy coming coming from a guy who worked for uh, Bush, for Dick Cheney, for John McCain, and right. well,
1: I, I think this gets to the sort of central, undiscussed uh, subtext to what happened in 2016. If you look at if you look at what happened in that election in the broad strokes, you had these sort of massive rebellions on both sides against. Um, against the party. Right. Yeah. If you want to loosely call it that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Republican party had 16 candidates besides Donald Trump. Uh, They had a hundred million dollars behind their sort of chosen front runner, Jeb Bush. And they couldn't even get to 10% in the polls. I mean, the sort of party backed candidates were, were not just failures. they were massive failures on the other side. You had, um, you know, a party back candidate who won the nomination, but it was close. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of Bernie Sanders phenomenon, I've covered a lot of elections, and in the past, somebody like Dennis Kucinich would never have gotten 43% of the vote with you know, pushing these kinds of politics. And what this, I think, speaks to is, you know, the sort of widespread frustration throughout the population uh over economic failures, over the lack of opportunities. I think your, your generation is getting out of school and they're finding that you know things that they think that they've been promised um, aren't there. They're finding that they've got to work until they're 30 to their mid30s before they can make a living wage, before they can get married, before they can own a house. I mean all these things that were sort of implicit, promises of the quote unquote American dream for people who grew up in the sixties and seventies they are just not there anymore. I mean, it's it's gone. And so people are turn they're they're looking for another solution, right? And yes, you have people on the other side like Donald Trump who are complete hucksters. I mean, Trump barely even disguised the fact that his promises were were basically empty and didn't have any real policy behind them. But this other phenomenon of people like Ocasio Cortez or Bernie Sanders, what they're saying is, look, we tried to do it this other way for 50, 60 years. Let's do something else. You know, let's let's try out taking a little bit better care of people in the population. Let's let's have state-sponsored daycare. Let's spend less in the military, et cetera, et cetera. And what you're seeing is a blowback, I think, from establishment figures who who want who want to keep a grip on, you know, on power and wanted to fame any attempts to, to, uh, sort of
0: create an alternative path for people to follow. What, uh, it got me thinking my first episode of the podcast, I spoke with a friend of mine who's a student in Sweden and, Mm -hmm. and Swedish government is set up. They have a social democratic party. Then they have a centrist party. Then they have, you know, their right wing party. Right. Um, and the whole Trump phenomenon has kind of exposed this um, set the, how the Democratic Party is really a centrist party or, or even like a classic Republican Party, today's establishment Democratic Party. You see people like um, Steve Schmidt and even Bill Kristol.
1: Yeah, Bill Crystal is now like
0: a Democrat, which is hilarious. Right. And Nicole Wallace, you know, the liberal media for all this talk about the liberal media, the entire daytime lineup of NBC is Joe Scarborough, who was a Republican congressman. Uh, Stephanie Rule, who was a finance who worked on Wall Street, Nicole Wallace, who was a Republican strategist, you know. So for all this liberal media talk, the most progressive n- cable news is filled with Republicans. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, the sort of baseline deception of of the media is always that there's balance, right? Like, so if you look at the New York Times editorial page, yeah, you're going to find a right winger on there, um, Brett Stevens. But what you won't find is, like, a Sanders-style progressive. I mean, those voices are basically not really in... The commercial media anywhere and that's probably going to start changing, but, um, but yeah, the, this, the, the reaction to this, to this new movement, to politicians like Ocasio Cortez. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of consternation about it because. The policies that they're espousing would be, you know, a significant shift for, for the United States. It would mean less defense spending, more social spending. There are a lot of financial interests that aren't going to want that. And so that's that's why you're going to see a lot of blowback. Uh,
0: and that's start starting now. Uh, Steve Schmidt, he um, he brings up dishonest progressivism. And, and then he goes on to list things like, um, you know, Medicare for all and tuition-free college. But when Steve Schmidt cr- grew up, it was basically, we basically had a debt free medical system and a debt free college system. Right. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. But yep. now, but now it's dishonest because, you know, administrations he worked for, you know, and that's another thing. The Iraq wars were on the credit card, the prescription drug. Um, so for dishonest progressivism, you know, it's, it, it's especially rich coming from him.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, all these people, uh, we never hear about how it's unrealistic to pay for something when it's like, you know, we need to occupy the Middle East, essentially, for the next 20 twenty years, uh, mm-hmm. which is not only a terrible idea from a policy perspective, but costs an enormous amount of money. I mean, anybody who, who covered the Iraq War... Will tell you that we were just spending money hand over fist. I mean, we probably we probably couldn't have wasted more money if we if if we took it off the pallets house. and and set it on fire. <laughs> you know, like I, I watched that stuff over there. It, it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, and every time a soldier went through the door uh, in a in a cafeteria on one of the bases over there, it was costing a taxpayer thirty seven dollars. Right. Uh, so. You know, just for simple things like do the soldiers really need Baskin Robbins ice cream to eat uh, while they're, you know, stationed in a, a country that they're, they shouldn't be occupying? Like, we don't call that unrealistic, <laughs> um, but uh, but we do call, you know, having basic medical care or, 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 you know, affordable higher education, we call that unrealistic and a fantasy. And, um, yeah, it is rich coming from those guys.
0: and. So that means he actually doesn't know that Medicare for all system is cheaper than, you know, going back to the emergency room healthcare system. Or I don't know what Republicans want to do with healthcare, to be honest.
1: Well, it's not about, I mean, if you talk to Republican voters about this issue, it's not so much about the cost that they pay. It's really, it's really much more about the resentment and about making sure that somebody doesn't, somebody else doesn't get something for free. Um, you know, there's, there's an old uh, Russian folk tale, or it's actually a joke. Basically, a guy finds a genie uh, in his in his closet, and he rubs the bottle. A genie comes out, and he says, um, he says, "I'll give you anything, but the catch is your neighbor has to get twice as much." So the guy says, pluck out one of my eyes, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and that's basically what, what a lot of this policy stuff is about, the opposition to, to Obamacare. It was really grounded in this idea that we don't want people walking over the border and being able to get free health care while I have to pay for mine or I have to pay taxes, uh, despite the fact that those people are going to walk over the border, walk right into emergency rooms and cost you twice as much right. if they're not in the system. People don't even get that far intellectually. They just, they just get to that place where they're upset about the, the optics of it and, and they don't, they don't move off that.
0: I don't see how this isn't a bigger midterm issue of repealing, you know, the, uh, I'm not sure if it's in Obamacare. Is the pre-existing condition part of Obamacare? Is it yeah, a separate a law?
1: Big, yeah. 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 The pre-existing condition thing was, but that was a big part of it.
0: So, no, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, they, I don't see how that's not a bigger, you know, midterm campaign issue, but, you know, you have democratic leadership saying that Medicare for all isn't a winning strategy or that overall that speaking to working people isn't a winning strategy when the opposite ideas are, you know, you have to wait till you have to go to the emergency room or you have to deal with Romney care, as I right. like to call it. Right. Uh, <laughs> D- written by again, written by insurance companies. Um, yeah,
1: it's it's a completely uh, you know the Romney care system is a is a very slight improvement over what we had previously, but it's still it's still ridiculous. Talk to any doctor, and they'll tell you that they spend you know, 60% of their time doing stuff that has nothing to do with medical care because they have to deal with the billing. No, I mean, I I, I went to a a hospital that is now closed in in New Jersey, went out of business because of this stuff. They had a hospital in one building and then they had another building of equivalent size, which was entirely full of people whose whole job was just to chase claims all day. So, so, you know, it's, we have an incredibly stupid system. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense to anybody. The, the only people who, who benefit from the current setup are pharma and, and insurance executives who get to jack up prices unnecessarily and benefit from some anti-competitive uh, laws that are in place, antitrust exemptions, you know, the ability to to charge Medicare more for drugs that they can get from other countries for cheaper, you know, less, fewer generics. You just wipe out all that stuff, healthcare will be cheaper and everybody will get it. It's just, you know, I, I know it sounds facile, but it's not. It, it, it's really, it, it just doesn't need to be this complicated.
0: It really doesn't. But like you said, the entrenched interests, like insurance companies, get the first three seats at any discussion when it comes to healthcare in this country. Right. Um, I'm not sure which Scandinavian country ranks the highest in the index, the happy index chart, but I know it's one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: forget which one, but it's, yeah, it's probably,
1: yeah, yeah, that
0: makes sense. When it comes to, you know, life expectancy, all of, all of that stuff. And, and the argument is always, you know, they have a much smaller country, so they can do it. Well, uh, we have a much larger population, so that means we have more taxpayers. That means we can also do it. That's a, that's a stupid argument. Um, same thing with, um, you know, taxpayer provided healthcare. Or Medicare for all doesn't mean you're going to a government-run hospital, you know, getting surgery from a government official. It's not government takeover of healthcare in the way that they portray it. It's you know, taxpayers insuring other taxpayers, in in its most basic sense.
1: Well, it, it and it's it's really just the billing system. It's it's a it's a it's a payee system. It's not. Right. I mean, you're not you're not you're not walking into a Soviet hospital with, you know, your comrade doctor. You know, what I'm saying? It, it's it's a these are privately trained, uh, privately employed uh, people, but you're going to have a unified billing system uh, that's going to go through a, a, a rational uh, and hopefully relatively streamlined process. Um whereas right now you know like again a, a doctor has to go through a 100 different um systems just to get paid because the depending on how big your your patient base is um you know you might be dealing with 20 30 40 different in, insurers and they might have varying policies on varying treatments and that's that's stuff it's just impossible for them to navigate. I mean, my my wife's a doctor. I hear about this stuff all the time, and it's just it just doesn't make any sense the way we have it set up.
0: Yeah, and you know, like I said, my I have friends you know that go into school in Sweden, and they walk they literally walk into a hospital when they need to, or you know, a clinic, whatever the case may be. They pay like ten to twenty dollar copay. And that's it. And then, you know, they, they get whatever they need. And then they don't, if it's for the same reason, they don't have to pay that $20 if they need to go, go back or go see a specialist. Um, it's, it seems so nice that it seems like un, unreasonable.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that it's, it's, it's now sort of built into our, uh, unconscious that that we, um, that for some reason healthcare has to be expensive problematic, uh, irrational, and stress-inducing. I mean, I, I had the same experience when I was a student in, in Russia. Um, and, you know, I got sick, and I just walked into a, walked into a doctor's office, and I, I expected there to be more hullabaloo about it. And, you know, they, they, they looked at me like I was crazy because I was uh, – I. I was just expecting it to be more stressful, and it it doesn't need to be. It just really doesn't.
0: And uh, I've taken up enough of your time to kind of close out on a on a more lighter note. Um, one thing that you know, I can't say anything good about Trump. Of course, nobody could. I don't see how anybody can. But he's exposed one thing, in my opinion. And I just want to get your your take on this. Is one thing he's exposed is there's no. If the Senate and House is unwilling to put up the guardrails to flirting with fascism, then we need to stop being scared. If a social democratic government actually took over power, all three branches of government, we could actually do whatever we wanted and nobody could stop us. And it's not like we would implement, you know, it it would be Medicare for all. It would be, you know, but even for things like stacking the court or I'm sorry, packing the court, the Supreme Court, um, you you wouldn't be impeached for it if you had an agreeing Senate or in an agreeing Congress. So he's kind of exposed that, you know, if you actually want to make big change in this country, it's possible. You just have to make sure you get all three branches of government.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, one of the things that uh, I thought was a result of the 2016 election. And I'm, I was always afraid to say this, but I think, I think it's a, salient point is that you know trump trump proved that all kinds of political outcomes are possible um they we have been told for generations now that only certain kinds of politicians and only certain kinds of policies are are even feasible and that you can only only, only somebody who advocates a, a very narrow type of um you know, laissez-faire, capitalist, militarist, politics is an electable politician. Uh, you know, Trump Trump managed to get elected solely um, on the strength of personality and message. He didn't really have a whole lot of institutional uh, support in getting elected. Now, he was exactly the wrong person for the, the people to choose as their first, you know, def- act of defiance against the system, but it does prove that, you know, that somebody other than the same old, same old can get elected. And I think, I think that people are waking up to that possibility. I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing uh, across the country, a lot of these new kinds of politicians like Ocasio-Cortez, like, um, you know, like Sanders, uh, you you know there there people are more open minded now about trying out new things and yeah if if you if you have enough people in government i think i think they'll um i think it's very possible that we could we, we could have a future that could be as interesting in a positive way as this one is in a negative way
0: all right well i'd like to thank you again matt um, again uh, matt Taibbi, you can find him on twitter at m taibi i believe um mm-hmm. find him uh writing in the rolling stone and pick up his latest book i can't breathe a killing on bay street um thanks again matt
1: all right
0: thanks a lot keith take care you too you. and to close out this week's episode i'd like to kind of stick with the theme and leave you with the story of one of my personal political heroes
1: On December 4, 1969, Chicago police raided Fred Hampton's apartment, shot and killed him in his bed. He was just 21 years old. Black Panther leader Mark Clark was also killed in the raid. While authorities claimed the Panthers had opened fire on the police, who were there to uh, serve a search warrant for weapons, evidence later emerged that told a very different story, that the FBI, the Cook County State's attorney's office and the Chicago police conspired to assassinate Fred Hampton.
2: Noam Chomsky has called Hampton's killing the gravest domestic crime of the Nixon administration. In 1969, he had emerged as the charismatic young chairman of the Chicago Black Panther Party. So we say, we always say to the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to to us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. What makes them mad about it? What makes them mad about it is that they have black people and white poor people and red poor people and Puerto Rican poor people and Latin American Puerto Rican people. Of, uh, uh, poor people of all descent. The they had them caught up in their movements based on racism when the Black Panther Party stood up and said that we don't care what anybody says. We don't think you fight five with five, we think you fight five with water best. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. Right on, right on. That's saying that no matter what color you are, there's only two classes. And that's saying there's a class over here, and there's a class over there. And the reason that this class over here has never did anything to get this class off its back, because this is lower, this is upper. This is the oppressed, this is the oppressor. This is the exploited, this is the exploiter. And these people in this class have divided themselves. They say, I'm black and I hate white people. I'm white and I hate black people. I'm Latin American and I hate hillbillies. I'm hillbillies and I hate Indians. So we fight amongst each other. See, I got, the thing is with me, you dig, I, I need to know some more about, I wish you had some more literature about the educational thing here. Because, you dig, as far as we're concerned in, uh, in the struggle, the way we look at struggle is that uh, this depends on the educational thing, you dig. Because so of, this depends on the education. System. Well, the whole thing. Man. No, but in the end, this does. You, you can form this with no education. You can uh, form this No, this no. This. not the way we're talking about forming it. You know, right. We're talking about forming it right. You know, it's not on the paper. We didn't write it on no, the you paper. form it right with no education. No. Let me give you an example. No. Uh, you, Yomo you, you Mo Kenyatta formed the excellent revolution with no education. And on <laughs> day to the day of the end thing, Yomo told the motherfucker, I said, well, uh, you know, uh, you can been educated to uh, uh, hate the enemy, but uh, I'm mean, your brother, I'll help you lead the revolution. Now I'm more oppression. Another example, Papa Doc in Haiti. Papa Doc yes. in Haiti hated everything white. Man, you couldn't put this white paper in front of Papa Doc's face, but he moved all the white people out and he took over and to be yeah, oppressed when he wrong did, causing no education. And the people that have been educated, they've said that we don't hate the motherfucking uh. white people, we hate the oppressor, whether he be white, black, brown, or yellow. Uh, with no education, the people that take this local foundation and start stealing money because they won't be really educated the why it's the people's thing anyway. You understand what I'm saying? With no education, you have neocolonialism colonialism instead of colonialism, like you got in uh, uh, Africa Nine, like you got in, um, in, uh, in uh, Haiti. So what we're talking about is there has to be uh, education. In the program that's very important. As a matter of fact, we is so important for us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before he can consider himself a member of the party, able to even run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they're nowhere. You dig know what I'm saying? You know because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. You you might get people caught up in an emotionless movement. Uh, you understand me? You might get them caught up in because they're poor and they want something. And then if they're not educated, they want more. And before you know it, they'll be capitalists. And before you know it, we'll have Negro imperialists. Yeah, we see, brother. Uh, the reason we don't do a lot of talking is because what you say
0: is foregone conclusion with us.
2: <sighs> yeah, well, see, brother. The reason I do do a lot of talking is because I don't. There's no foregone conclusion with me. We work with anybody. and Form coalition with anybody. That has revolution on their mind. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just it's a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be alright if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're gonna to have to put it back in the hands of the people. Now we say all power to all people. We say, power people. We say, power people. We say white power to white people, white power to white people, brown power to brown people. Brown power. Yellow power to yellow people? Yellow power. To yellow people. Black power to black people? Black power. X-power for, that we, left out. X power for that we left out. We say Panther Power to the vanguard party. When you I believe that I'm going to do my job and I believe that I was born not to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm gonna die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm gonna die, die from slipping on a piece of ice. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die in the things I was born for. I believe that I'm going to be able to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the international revolutionary post struggle. And I hope that each one of you will be able to die in the international post-train revolutionary struggle, even if you're living it. And I think that struggle is going to come. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't
1: you die for the people?